Well, I'm, I'm, I'm back again. Um, as it turns out, I actually already read Chapter 5. I read Chapter 4 and Chapter 5 in The Horse and His Boy Part 4. So, well, I'm, it's good. I'm actually reading, I'm actually on Chapter 6. And uh, going to try and read both Chapter 6 and 7. So, wow. All right. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's get started. Um, yeah, go check out the, the previous Horse and His Boy episode, the previous Horse and His Boy episodes to figure out what's going on. And, uh, I appreciate, I appreciate everyone who watches this. Uh, go check out the movie reviews, like the Marvel, the Marvel, uh, series, which, um, I've, most, I've reviewed all of the movies, mostly all the movies. Um, I think all of the movies, I think, uh, but, uh, um, so there's like reviewed the Star Wars, the original, the prequels and the original trilogy, uh, reviewed some of the, reviewed like the first four X-Men movies, uh, four or five, reviewed two of the Die Hard movies, just if you, if you, uh, just go check those out, and uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate the people who watch this, and yeah, so let's get into it. Um, chapter 6, this is going to be The Horse and His Boy, Part 5. Alright. Chapter 6, Shasta Among the Tombs. Shasta ran lightly along the roof on tiptoes. It felt hot to his bare feet. He was only a few seconds scrambling up the wall at the far end. And when he got to the corner, he found himself looking down into a narrow, smelly street, and there was a rubbish heap against the outside of the wall, just as Corinne, just as Corinne had told him. Before jumping down, he took a rapid glance round him to get his bearing, to get his bearings. Apparently, he had now come over the crown of the island hill on which Tashbon is built. Everything sloped away before him, flat, flat roofs below flat roofs. Down to the top, t- down to the towers and battlements of the city's northern wall. Beyond that was the river, and beyond the river, a short slope covered with gardens. But beyond that, again, there was something he had never seen in the like of a great yellowish gray thing, flat as a calm sea and stretching for miles. On the far side of it were huge blue things, lumpy with, but with jagged edges, and some of them with white tops. The desert, the the desert, the mountains, thought Shasta. Uh, also, a quick pause. Uh, the Shang-Chi review might be coming today or tomorrow, so you you might be getting two episodes in one day. So, yeah, back to the book. He jumped down onto the rubbish and began trotting along downhill as fast as he could in the narrow lane, which soon brought him into a wider street where... Where there were more people, no one bothered to look at a little ragged boy running along on bare feet. Still, he was anxious and uneasy, so he turned a corner and there saw the city gate in front of him. Here he was pressed and jostled a bit, for a good many other people were also going out, and on the bridge beyond the gate, the crowd became quite quite a slow procession, more like a queue than a crowd out there with clear running water on each side. It was deliciously fresh after the smell and heat and noise of Tashmont. 
When once Shasta reached the far end of the bridge, he found the crowd melting away. Everyone seemed to be going either to the left or right along the riverbank. He went straight ahead up a road that did not appear to be much used to be much used between gardens. In a few paces he was alone, and a few more brought him to the top of the slope. There the grass stopped quite suddenly a few feet before him, and the sand began. Endless level sand, like on a sea seashore, but a bit rougher because it was never wet. The mountains, which now looked further off than before, loomed ahead. Greatly to his relief, he saw about five minutes walk away on his left, what must certainly be the tombs, just as Bree had described them. Great masses of great masses of moldering stone shaped like gigantic beehives, but a little narrower. They looked very black and grim, for the sun was now setting right, by, right behind them. He turned his face west and trotted towards the tombs. He could not help looking out very hard for any sign of his friends, though the setting sun shone in his, shone in his face so that he could see hardly anything. And anyway, he thought, of course they'll be around on the far side of the farthest tomb, not this side where anyone might see them from the city. There were about twelve tombs, each with a low arched doorway that opened into absolute blackness. They were dotted about in no kind of order, so that it took a long time going round this one and going round that one before you could be sure that you had looked round every side of every tomb. This was what Shasta had to do. There, there was nobody there. It was very quiet, quiet here out on the edge of the desert, and now the sun had really set. Suddenly, from somewhere behind him, there came a terrible sound. Shasta's heart gave a great jump, and he had to bite his tongue to keep himself from screaming. Next moment, he realized what it was. The horns of Tashban blowing for the closing of the gates. Don't be a silly don't be a silly little coward, said Shasta to himself. Why, it's only the same noise you heard this morning, but there is a great difference between the noise heard letting you in with your friends in the morning and the noise heard alone at nightfall shutting you out. And now the gates were shut, he knew there was no chance of the others joining him that evening. Either they're shut up in Tashman for the night, thought Shasta, or else they've gone on without him. Gone on without me. It's just the sort of thing that Aravis would do, but Bree wouldn't. Oh, he wouldn't now, would he? And this idea about Aravis Shasta And this idea about Aravis Shasta was once more quite wrong. She was proud and could be hard enough. But she was as true as steel and and would never have deserted a companion, whether she liked him or not. Now that Shasta knew he would have to spend the night alone, it was getting darker every minute. He began to like the look of the place less and less. There was something very uncomfortable about those great silent shapes of stone. He had been trying his hardest for a long time not to think of ghouls, but he couldn't keep it up any longer. Ow, ow, help, he shouted suddenly, for at that very moment he felt something touch his leg. I don't think anyone can be blamed for shouting if something comes up from behind and touches him, not in such a place and at such a time when he is frightened, not, when he is frightened already. Shasta, at any rate, was too frightened to run. 
Anything would be better than being chased round and round the burial places of the ancient kings, but something he dared not look at behind him. Behind him, Instead, he did what was really the most sensible thing he could do. He looked around, and his heart almost burst with relief, but it touched him was only a cat. The light was too bad now for Shasta to see much of the cat, except that it was big and very solemn. It looked as if it might have lived for long, long years among the tombs, alone. Its eyes made you think it knew secrets it would not tell. Puss, puss, said Shasta. I suppose you're not a talking cat. The cat stared at him harder than ever, then it started walking away, and of course Shasta followed it. It led him right through the tombs and out on the desert side of them. There it sat down bolt upright with its tail curled round its feet, and its face set towards the desert and toward Narnia and the north, as, as still as if it were watching for some enemy. Shasta lay down beside it with his back against the cat and his face toward, towards the tombs. Because if one is nervous, there's nothing like having your face towards the danger and having something warm, warm and, and solid at your back. The sand wouldn't have seemed very comfortable to you, but Shasta had been sleeping on the ground for weeks and hardly noticed it. Very soon he fell asleep, though. Even in his dreams, he went on wondering what had happened to Bree and the rabbits and her wind. He was wakened suddenly by a noise he had never heard before. Perhaps it was only a nightmare, said Shasta to himself. At the same moment, he noticed that the cat had gone from his back, and he wished it hadn't. But he lay quite still without even opening his eyes, because he felt sure he would be more frightened if he sat up and looked round at the tombs and the loneliness, just as you or I might look round at the tombs, just as you or I might lie still with our clothes over our heads. But then the noise came again, a harsh piercing cry from behind out of the desert. Then, of course, he had to open his eyes and sit up. The moon was shining brightly. The tombs, far bigger and nearer than he had thought they would be, looked gray in the moonlight. In fact, in fact, they looked horribly like huge people like huge people draped in gray robes that covered their heads and faces. They were not at all nice things to have near you when spending a night alone in a strange place, but the noise had come from the opposite side, from the desert. Shasta had to turn his back on the tombs. He didn't like that much. And stare out across the level sand. The wild cry rang out again. I hope it's not more lions, thought Shasta. It was, in fact, not very like the lion's roars. He had heard on the night when they met Hoen and know this. Even if he had known, he he would not have wanted very much to meet a jackal. The cries rang out again and again. There's more than one of them, whatever they are, thought Shasta. And they're coming nearer, nearer. I suppose that if he had been an entirely sensible boy, he would have gone back through the tombs near the river where there were houses and wild beasts would be less likely to come, but then there were, or he thought there were, the ghouls. To go back through the tombs and mean going past those dark openings in the tombs, and what might come out of them? It may have been silly, but Shasta felt he had rather risk the wild beast than as the cries came nearer and nearer, he began to change his mind. He was just going to run for it, and suddenly, between him and the desert, a huge animal bounded into view as the moon was behind it. It looked quite black. 
and Shasta did not know what it was, except that it had a very big, shaggy head and went on four legs. It did not seem to have noticed Shasta before it suddenly stopped, turned its head towards the desert, and let out a roar, which re-echoed through the tombs and seemed to shake the sand under Shasta's feet. Cries of the other creatures suddenly stopped, and he thought he could hear feet scampering away. Then the great beast turned to examine Shasta. It's a lion. I know it's a lion, thought Shasta. I'm done. I wonder, I wonder, will it hurt much? I wish it was over. I wonder, does anything happen to people after they're dead? Oh, 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 here it comes, and he shut his eyes and his teeth tight. But instead of teeth and claws, he only felt something warm lying down at his feet. And when he opened his eyes, he said, Why, it's not as nearly as big as he thought. It's only half the size. No, it, it isn't even quarter of a size. I do declare it's only the cat. I must have dreamed... I must have dreamed all that about it being as big as a horse, and whether he really had been dreaming or no, what was now lying at his feet and staring at and staring him out of countenance with its big green unwinking eyes was a cat, was the cat, though certainly one of the largest cats he had ever seen. Oh, puss, gasped Shasta, I'm so glad to see you again. I've been having such horrible dreams, and he at once lay down again back-to-back back with the cat as they had been at the beginning of the night, the warmth from it spread all over him. I'll never do anything nasty to a cat again as long as I live, said Shasta, half to the cat and half to himself. I did once, you know. I threw stones at a half-starved mangy old stray. Hey, stop that. But the cat had turned around and given, us, and given him a scratch. None of that, said, Sh said Shasta. It isn't as if you could understand what I'm saying. Let me doze off. Next morning, when he woke, the cat was gone, the sun was already up, and the sand hot. Shasta, very thirsty, sat up and rubbed his eyes. The desert was blindingly white, and though there were a murmur of noises from the city behind him, where he sat, everything was perfectly still. When he looked a little left and west, so that the sun was not in his eyes, he could see the mountains on the far side of the desert, so sharp and clear that they looked only a stone's throw away. He particularly noticed one blue height that divided into two peaks at the top and decided that it must be Mount Pyre. That's our direction, judging by what, by what the raven said, he thought. So I'll just make sure of it so as not to waste any time when the others turn up. So he made a good deep straight furrow with his feet pointing exactly to Mount Pyre. The next job clearly was to get something to eat and drink. Shasta trotted back through the tombs. They looked quite ordinary now, and he wondered how he could have ever been afraid of them, and down into the cultivated land by the river's side. There were few people about, but not very many, for the city, for the city gates had been opened several hours, and the early morning crowds had already gone in, so he had no difficulty in doing a little raiding, as Bree called it. It involved a climb over a garden a garden wall, and the results were three oranges, a melon, a fig or two, and a pomegranate. After that, he went down to the river bank, but not too near the bridge, and had a drink. The water was so nice that he took off his hot, dirty clothes and had a dip, for of course Shasta, having lived on the shore all his life, had learned to swim almost as soon as he had learned to walk. When he came out, he lay on the grass looking across the water at Toshpon. All the splendor and strength and glory of it, but that made him rem remember the dangers of it too. He suddenly realized that the others 
might have reached the tombs while he was bathing and gone on without him, as luckily as not. So he dressed in a fright and tore back at such a speed that he was all hot and thirsty when he arrived. And so the good of his bath was gone. Like most days when you are alone and waiting for something, this day seemed about a hundred hours long. He had plenty to think of, of course, but sitting alone just thinking is pretty slow. He thought a good deal about the Narnians and especially about Corinne. He wondered what had happened when they discovered that the boy who had been lying on the sofa and hearing all their secret plans wasn't really Corinne at all. It was very unpleasant to think of all those nice people imagining him a traitor, but as the sun slowly, slowly climbed up to the top of the sky and then slowly, slowly began going downwards to the west, and no one came, and nothing had all happened. He began to get more and more anxious, and of course he now realized that when they arranged to wait for another, for one another at the tombs, no one had said anything about how long. He couldn't wait here for the rest of his life, and soon it would be dark again. And he, would have an, and he would have another night, just like last night. A dozen different plans went through his head, all wretched ones. And at last, he fixed on the worst plan of all. He decided to wait till it was dark, and then go back to the river and steal as many melons as he could carry, and set out from Mount Pyre alone, trusting for his, trusting for his direction to the line he had drawn that morning in the sand. It was a crazy idea, and if he had read as many books as you have about journeys over deserts, he would never have dreamed of it, but Shasta had read no books at all. But before the sun set, something did happen. Shasta was sitting in the shadow of one of the tombs when he looked up and saw two horses coming towards him. Then his heart gave a great leap, for he recognized them as Bree and Hawin, but next moment his heart went down into his toes again. There was no sign of Barabbas. The horses were being led by a strange man, an armed man, pretty handsomely dressed like an upper slave in a great family. Bree and her wind were no longer got up like pack horses, but saddled and bridled. And what could and what could it all mean? It's a trap, thought Shasta. Somebody has caught the rabbits, and perhaps they they tortured her, and she's given the whole thing away. They want me to jump out and, and run up and speak to Bree, and then I'll be caught too. And yet, if I don't, I may be losing my only chance to meet the others. Oh, I do wish I knew what had happened. And he skulked behind the tomb, looking out every few minutes and wondering which was the least dangerous thing to do. And that's the end of chapter six. Uh, see you guys. Uh, see you guys. Uh, I'm going to end this episode and then start a. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, see you guys all later. Gonna read chapter seven. Uh, yeah. Bye. All right, I'm back again. It's uh, time to read. It's time to read chapter six. Time to read chapter six. Of the horse and his boy. I mean, I said chapter six. It's time to read chapter seven. Chapter. Wow, I can't speak. Summary ch- chapter seven. Rabbis and trust in Tashbon. Yeah. Alright. What had really happened was this. When Arabis saw Shasta hurried away by the Narnians and found herself alone with two horses who very wisely wouldn't say a word, 
She never lost her head even for a moment. She grabbed Bree's halter and stood still holding both the horses and though, and though her heart was beating as hard as a hammer, she did nothing to show it. As soon as the Narnian lords had passed, she tried to move on again, but before she could take a step, another crier, bother all these people, Father Ravis, was heard shouting out, Way, 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 way for the Tarkina Lasarilene. La and immediately following the crier came four armed slaves and then four bearers, bearers carrying a litter, which was, a, which was all a flutter with silken curtains and all a jingle with silver bells and with scented the whole street with perfumes and flowers. After the litter, female slaves in beautiful clothes and then a few grooms, runners, pages, and the like, and now Aravis made her first mistake. She knew Lasarling quite well, almost as if they had been at school together, because they had they had often stayed in the same houses and been to the same parties, and Aravis couldn't help looking up to see what Lasarling looked like now that she was married, and a very great person indeed. It was fatal, the eyes of the two girls met, and immediately Lasarling sat up in the litter and burst out at the top of her voice. Aravis, what on earth are you doing here? Your father it was not a moment to lose. Without a second's delay, Aravis let go of the horses, caught the edge of the litter, swung herself up beside Lasarling, and whispered furiously in her ear, Shut up! Do you hear? Shut up! You must hide me. Tell your people. But darling, began Lasarling in the same loud voice, she didn't in the least mind making people stare. In fact, she rather liked it. Do what I tell you, or I'll never speak to you again, hissed Aravis. Please, please, be quick, lass. It's frightfully important. Tell your people to bring those two horses along. Pull all the curtains of the litter and get away somewhere where I can't be found and do hurry. All right, darling, said Lasarling in her lazy voice. Here, two of you take the Tarquinas horses. This was to the slaves. And now home. I say, darling, do you think we really want the curtains drawn on a day like this? I mean to say, but Ravis had already drawn the curtains, enclosing Lasarilene and herself in a rich and scented, but rather stuffy kind of tent. I mustn't be seen, she said. My father doesn't know I'm here. I'm running away. My dear, how perfectly thrilling, said Lasarilene. I'm dying to hear all about it. Darling, you're sitting on my dress. Do you mind? That's better. Is it? It is a new one. Do you like it? I got it at... Oh, lass. Do be serious, said Aravis. Where is my father? Didn't you know? Said Lasarling. He's here, of course. He came to town yesterday and is asking about you everywhere. And to think of you and me being here together and his not knowing anything about it is the funniest thing I've ever heard. And she went off into giggles. She always had been a terrible giggler, giggler as Aravis now remembered. It isn't funny at all, she said. It's dreadfully serious. Where can you hide me? No difficulty at all, my dear girl, said Lasarling. I'll take you home. My husband's away, and no one will see you. Phew, that's not much fun with the curtains, John. I want to see people. There's no point in having a new dress on. If one's to go about shut up like this, I hope no one heard you when you shouted out to me like that, said Aravis. Said Aravis. No, no, of course, darling, said Lasarling about absent-mindedly. Mind but you haven't even told me yet what you think of the dress. 
Another thing, said the rabbit, you must tell your people to treat those two horses very respectfully. That's part of the secret. They're really talking horses from Narnia. Fancy, said Lasaraline. How exciting. And oh, darling, have you seen the barbarian queen from Narnia? She's staying in Toshban at present. They say Prince Rabidash is madly in love with her. There have been the most wonderful parties and hunts and things all this last fortnight. I can't, I can't see that she's so very pretty myself. But some of the Narnian men are lovely. I was taking out, I was taken out on the river party the day before yesterday, and I was wearing my. How shall we prevent your people telling everyone that you've got a visitor dressed like a beggar's brat in your house? It might so easily get round to my father. Now don't keep on fussing, there's a dear, said Lassaraline. We'll get you some proper clothes in a moment. And here we are. The bearers had stopped and the litter was being lowered. When the curtains had been drawn, a rabbit found that she was in a courtyard garden, very like the one that Shasta had been taken into a few minutes earlier in another part of the city. Lassaraline would have gone indoors at once, but the rabbit reminded her in a frantic whisper to say something to the slaves about not telling anyone of their mistress's strange visitor. Sorry, darling. It had gone right. It had gone right, right out of my head," said Lasaraline. "Here, all of you, and you, doorkeeper. No one is to be let out of the house today. And anyone I catch talking about this young lady will be first beaten to death, and then burned alive, and after that be kept on bread and water for six weeks. For six weeks, there. Jeez." Although Lasaraline had said she was dying to hear Ravis's story, she said she showed no sign of really wanting to hear it at all. She was in fact much better at talking at talking than at listening. She insisted on Ravis having a long and luxurious bath. Kalorman baths are famous, and then dressing her up in the finest clothes before she would let her explain anything. The fuss she made up about choosing the dresses nearly drove Ravis mad. She remembered now that Lasaraline had Lasaraline had always been like that, interested in clothes and parties and gossip. Aravis had always been more interested in bows and arrows and horses and dogs and swimming. You would guess they each thought the other silly, but when at last they were both seated after a meal, it was chiefly of the whipped cream and jelly and fruit and ice sort, the beautiful pillowed room, which Aravis would have liked better if Lasaraline's spoiled pet monkey had been climbing about it all the time. Lasaraline at last asked her, why she was running away from home. When Aravis had finished telling her story, Lasaraline said, But darling, why don't you marry Ahasta Tarkhan? Everyone, sorry if I botched that. Everyone's crazy about him. My husband says he is beginning to be one of the greatest men of Kalorman. He has just been made Grand Vizier now. Or Asartha has died. Didn't you know? I don't care. I can't stand the, I can't stand the sight of him, said Aravis. But darling, only think, three palaces and one of them, that beautiful one down on the lake at Ilkeen, positively ropes of pearls, I'm told, baths of asses' milk, and, you, and you'd see such a lot of me. He can keep his pearls and palaces and palaces as far as I'm concerned, said Aravis. You always were a queer girl, Aravis said Lasaraline. What more do you want? In the end, however, Aravis managed to make her friend the way that she was in earnest and even to discuss plans. There would be no difficult difficulty now about getting the two horses out of the north gate and then on to the tombs. No one would stop or question a groom, 
in fine clothes leading a war horse and a lady saddle horse down to the river, and the Sierra Leone had plenty of grooms to send. It wasn't so easy to, to decide what to do about Aravis herself. She suggested that she could be carried out in the litter with the curtains drawn, but the Sierra Leone told her that litters, litters were only used in the city, and the sight of one going out through the gate would be certain to lead to questions. When they had talked for a long time, and it was all the longer because Ravis found it hard to keep her friend to the point. At last, Lacerling clapped her hands and said, Oh, I have an idea. There's one way of getting out of the city without using the gates. The Tishwak's garden, may he live forever, runs right down to the water. And there was a little water door, only for the palace people, of course. But then, you know, dear, here she teetered, tittered a little. We almost are palace people. I say it is lucky for you that you came to me, but dear Tishrock, may he live forever, is so kind. We're axed to the palace almost every day, and it is like a second home. I love all the dear princes and princesses, and I positively adore Prince Rabidash. I might run in and see any of the palace ladies at any, at any hour of the day or night. Why shouldn't I slip in with you after dark and let you out? and let you out by the water door. There are always a few punts and things tied up outside it, and even if we were caught, all would be lost, said Aravis. Oh, darling, don't get so excited, said Lacerling. I was going to say, even if we were caught, everyone would say it was one of my mad jokes. I'm getting quite well known for them. Only the other day, do listen, dear, this is frightfully funny. I meant all would be lost for me, said Aravis a little sharply. Oh, ah, yes, I do see what you mean, darling. What, can you think of any better plan? Aravis couldn't, and answered, No, we'll have to risk it. When can we start? Oh, not tonight, said Lacerling. Of course not tonight. There's a great feast on tonight, and I must start getting my hair done for it in a few minutes, and the whole place will be a blaze of lights, and such a crowd, too. It would have to be tomorrow night. This was bad news for Aravis, but she had to make the best of it. The afternoon passed very slowly, and it was a relief when Lacerling went out to the banquet, for Aravis was very tired of her giggling and her talk about dresses and parties, weddings and engagements and scandals. She went to bed early, and that part she did enjoy. It was so nice to have pillows and sheets again, but the next day passed very slowly. Lacerling wanted to go back on the whole arrangement and kept on telling Aravis that Narnia was, was a country a perpetual snow and ice inhabited by demons and sorcerers, and she was mad to think of going there. And with the peasant boy too, said Lacerling. Darling, think of it. It's not nice. Aravis had thought of it a good deal, but she was so tired of Lacerling's silliness by now that for the first time she began to think that traveling with Shasta was really rather more fun than fashionable. Like, was really rather more fun than fashionable life in Tashpan, so she only replied, you'll forget that I'll be a nobody, just like him when we get to Narnia, and anyway, I promised. And to think, said Lacerling, almost crying, that if only you had sense, you could be the wife of a grand vizier, Aravis went away to have a private word with the horses. You must go with the groom a little before sunset, down to the tomb, she said. No more of those packs, you'll be saddled and bridled again. But there have to be fruit in horn saddlebags and full water skin behind yours, Bree. The man has orders to let you both have a good long drink at the far side of the bridge. 
and then Nanya in the north, whispered Bree. But what if Shasta is not at Batum's? Wait for him, of course, said Aravis. I hope you I hope you've been quite comfortable. Never been stabled in my life, said Bree. But if the husband of that titter, te- teetering Parkina friend of yours is paying his head groom to get the best oats, then I think the head groom is cheating him. Aravis and, and, and Lacerline had supper in the pillared room. About two hours later, they were ready to start. Aravis was dressed to look like a superior slave girl in a great house and wore a veal over her face. They had agreed that if any questions were asked, Lacerline would pretend that Aravis was a slave she was taking as a present to one of the princesses. The two girls went out on foot. A very few minutes brought them to the palace gates. Here, they were, they were of course, soldiers on guard. But the officers knew, but the officer knew Lacerline quite well and called his men to attention and saluted. They passed at once into the hall of black marble. A fair number of courtiers, slaves, and others were still, were still moving about here, but this only made the two girls less conspicuous. They passed on into the halls of, into the hall of pillars, and then into the hall of statues, and down the colonnade, passing the great beaten copper doors of the throne room. It was all magnificent beyond description, what they could see of it in the dim light of the lamps. Present, presently, they came out into the into the garden court, which sloped downhill in a number of terraces. On the far side of that, they came to the old palace. It had already grown almost quite dark, and they now found themselves in a maze of corridors, lit only by occasional torches fixed in brackets to the wall. Fixed in brackets to the walls, Lacerline halted at a place where you had to go either left or right. Go on, do go on, whispered Aravis, whose heart was beating terribly, and who still felt that her father might run into them at any corner. I'm just wondering, said Lacerline. I'm not absolutely sure which way we go from here. I think it's the left. Yes, I'm almost sure it's the left. What fun this is. They took the left-hand way and found themselves in a passage that was hardly lighted at all and which soon began going down steps. It's all right, said Lacerline. I'm sure we're right now. I remember these steps, but at that moment, a, mo- a moving light appeared ahead. A second later, there appeared from around a distant corner the dark shapes of two men walking backwards walking backwards and carrying tall candles. And, of course, it only... It is only before royalties that people walk backwards. Arabis felt Lacerling grip her arm, that sort of sudden grip, which is almost a pinch, and which means that the person who is gripping you is very frightened indeed. Arabis thought it odd that Lacerling should be so afraid of the Tisrock if he were really such a friend of hers, but there was no time to go on thinking. Lacerling was hurrying her back to the top of the steps on tiptoe and groping wildly along the wall. Here's a door, she whispered. Quick, they went in, drew the door very softly behind them, and found themselves in pitch darkness. Aravis could hear by Lacerline's breathing that she was terrified. Tash, pres- preserve us, whispered, Lac- whispered Lacerline. What shall we do if he comes in here? Can we hide? There was a soft cop. There was a soft carpet under their feet. They groped forward into the room and blundered on onto a sofa. Let's lie down behind it, whimpered Lacerline. Oh, I do wish we hadn't come. There was just room between the sofa and the curtain wall, and the two girls and the two girls got down. 
Lasserly managed to get the better position and was completely covered. The upper part of Aravis's face stuck out beyond the sofa, so that if anyone came into that room with a white and happened to look in exactly the right place, they would see her. But of course, because she was wearing a veal, what they saw would not at once look like a forehead and a pair of eyes. Aravis shoved desperately to try to make Lasserly give her a little more room. But Lasserly, now quite selfish in her panic, fought back and pinched her feet. They gave it up and lay still, panting a little. Their own breath seemed dreadfully noisy. But there, but there was no other noise. Is it safe, said Aravis, at last in the tiniest possible whisper? I I, I think so, began Lasserling, but my poor nerves and then came the most terrible noise that could have heard at that moment, the noise of the door opening, and then came and then came light. And because Aravis couldn't get her head any further in behind the sofa, she saw everything. First came the two slaves, deaf and dumb, as Aravis rightly guessed, and therefore used at the most secret councils, walking backwards and carrying the candles. Excuse me. They took up their stand, one at each end of the sofa. This was a good thing, for of course it was now harder for anyone to see Aravis once a slave was in front of her and she was looking between his heels. Then came an old man, very fat, wearing a curious pointed cap by which he immediately knew that he was Batisrock. The least of the jewels with which he was covered was worth more than all the clothes and weapons of the Narnian lords put together, but he was so fat and such a mass of frills and pleats and and baubles and buttons and tassels and talesmen that Aravis couldn't help thinking that help couldn't help thinking the Narnian fashions at any rate for men looked nicer. After him came a tall young man with a feathered and jeweled turban on his head and an ivory sheathed smithar at his side. He seemed very excited, and his eyes and teeth flashed fiercely in the candlelight. Last of all came a little hump, humpbacked, wizened old man in whom she recognized with a shudder the new grand vizier and her own betrothed, betrothed husband, Ahashta Tarkan himself. As soon as all three had entered the room and the, and the door was shut, the Tishrach seated himself on the divan, or divan, one of those two, with a sigh of contentment. The young man took his place, standing before him, and the grand vizier got down on his knees and elbows and laid his face flat on the carpet. And that is the end of chapter 7. So, uh, yeah, um, we're going to try and read chapter 8 and 9. Uh, when I get another opportunity to record, um, so yeah, but uh, um, and hopefully, I, if I hopefully I can record the Shanghai review later today. If I can't, as I said in the in the other in the first segment, which is chapter six, then I'll try and um, record it tomorrow or whenever I can. But yeah, so um, see you all later. Bye. Wait, one second. No. One second. Uh one second. Uh thank you for listening to the to the show. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to listen to the show on any platform that has it.